It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. I'm speaking. I'm speaking. I'm speak. I'm speaking. Senator, stop undermining America's confidence in the vaccine, the one that doesn't exist yet. Welcome to the post vice presidential debate mop up. The elections are only 27 days away. I'm David Feldman and we'll be talking with Maximilian Alvarez, host of Working People in just a few minutes. And then we'll be joined by some of your favorite contributors to this show. I see Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Marianne Cummings, Jim Earl, Melania Trump, and of course, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn from Americans United from Americans United for Separation Church and State is here. Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris squared off at the University of Utah tonight. Tonight was the first and only vice presidential debate. And considering last week's shit show, it was the first and only debate. Kamala Harris tonight said climate change is an existential threat. She says it's such an existential threat that she promised Joe Biden would never put an end to fracking. That's how big a threat climate change is to our planet. Somebody needs to tell Joe Biden and Senator Harris that fracking is also an existential threat. Senator Harris added that Joe Biden will not raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000 a year. Vice President Pence called the Affordable Care Act a disaster and insisted Donald Trump has a plan to replace it, but wouldn't say what it was because it doesn't exist. Pence insisted the environment is getting better. He said that our air is much cleaner. Our air is much cleaner. That's why Mike Pence always looks like he just smelled Bill Barr's car seat. Unlike the last debate, the candidates were separated by plexiglass shields. Vice President Pence, of course, leads the administration's task force on COVID-19, and he has tested negative for COVID-19, even though Donald Trump has tested positive, which speaks volumes to the efficacy of wearing a dental dam while performing mouth to ass. When asked about the president's medical condition, Vice President Pence thanked all of us for our prayers. Obviously, he doesn't hear my prayers. A few words before we start on the cloud of darkness hanging over the West Wing tonight. Now, anyone who says they didn't feel a sense of elation when Donald Trump tested positive for COVID-19 is either lying or appearing on MSNBC right now, in which case they're lying. You felt elation, you shouldn't feel guilty. That elation we all felt last Friday morning was because for the first time since Trump became president, something finally made sense. When I heard that Trump tested positive, when I heard he was being checked into Walter Reed, I thought, 
Oh, yeah, I remember this. Cause and effect. Trump publicly flaunted the CDC guidelines. He refused to wear a mask, mocked those who did. He makes it okay not to wear a mask. I went for a walk today in Manhattan. More and more people than ever before are without masks. Why? Because of that display of Trump's on the Truman balcony Monday night, where he ripped off his mask like he was the Phantom of the Opera. And so now the Trump administration, they have COVID-19. And while it makes me sad for them and their family, it makes sense. It makes sense. Something finally makes sense. After nearly four years of being gaslit, being told that up is down, black is white, we finally could point to something and say one and one equals two. Again, I don't wish ill on President Trump or anybody in the West Wing, except for Stephen Miller, who tested positive for COVID on Tuesday, which makes Stephen Miller happy because that means he's got more white blood cells. Then again, I do feel sorry for Stephen Miller. Donald Trump wouldn't let him wear a mask, and a mask is the only way Stephen Miller can get laid. Again, I don't delight in the suffering of those who delight in the suffering of others. I don't. But the GOP is a party of sadists. They rule over a throng of ill-educated masochists. It's insanity. But Trump and his followers are the inevitability of a country controlled by wealth, where only the military and titans of finance get the last word as to what direction this country should be heading. Trump is back in the Oval Office. Trump is going to debate Biden next week. Trump will survive no matter how much tar fills his lungs. He will survive because there are two Americas. And when there are two Americas, there are two COVID-19s. There's the COVID-19 we get and there's the COVID-19 Donald Trump gets. They say COVID-19 doesn't care who it strikes. But the people in charge of our health care system, they care who it strikes. The rich and the powerful have access to drugs and ventilators that we do not. Trump's on a cocktail of three different state-of-the-art treatments for COVID-19, and he's getting monitored around the clock. Of course he's going to get better. Of course he already has antibodies. There are two Americas. There are two healthcare systems, one for the rich and the powerful and one for the rest of us. Both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republican, refuse to fight for universal health care. It leaves the rest of us, our America, it leaves us weak and powerless. That's why Donald Trump was elected, and that's why he remains in office. That's why it's so hard to get rid of him, because everyone in charge isn't part of our America. Senator Harris and Vice President Pence, everyone in charge doesn't have our health care. Senator Harris is not part of my America. Everyone in charge 
is not part of my America. Everyone in charge faces a different prognosis when the doctor tells them they tested positive for COVID-19. There are two Americas, and it isn't red state versus blue state. It's the richest 1% versus the rest of us. When the rich get sick, it's not like it is for the rest of us. And that's why it's unconscionable that America is, as America is ravaged by COVID-19, as Americans tonight are going broke from surprise bills, it's unconscionable that there was absolutely no discussion tonight about universal health care. There are two Americas, but only one America was on that debate stage tonight. And if Trump gets away with stealing this election, that's why. The citizens of our America are relying on the citizens of that other America to rescue us. Let's go to Maximilian Alvarez. He's the host of Working People. He's also the editor-in-chief of Real News. And he joins us today in Maryland. Are you here, Maximilian? Hey, Good to have you here. Coming up, Melania Trump, the vice president, the vice president, the first lady will be with us. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for that that tirade. That was spot on. Well, thank you. High praise from you, host of Working People. You do a podcast for in these times. Are the working people being considered right now? There's fewer than 27 days left until the election. Is there a conversation about working people in this election? No. They're, 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 I mean, like, as always, like, there isn't a conversation about or for working people. There's a conversation in which working people are used as a shield to protect the powerful, right? I thought it was, like, it, it was so sickening, right? But I, but I feel I want to I kind of comment on this in a second, but I mean, like, I think everyone was was struck by just kind of like how uh, automatically Pence kind of evades, you know, like answering the question that he's actually asked. And the thing that I thought was extremely telling, which was clearly the debate strategy that they had developed, was that every time that Mike Pence was asked to or, or you know, every time Kamala Harris to the moderator tried to force him to answer for the Trump administration's catastrophic failure to handle the COVID-19 pandemic instead of defending the terrain of the Trump presidency. Pence immediately switched to talking about the sacrifices of the American people as if, as if the two were one and the same. It's like right? the way and they defend going to war in Iraq. If you attack the war in Iraq, you're attacking our troops. If you attack right. how the administration is doing with COVID-19, you're attacking the American people. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it, it, it's it's so cynical. It's so gross. And, you know, I the, the, the kind of comment that I wanted to make on that, and I'd be curious to hear what, what you think, David, is like, you know, four years ago when I saw Pence on the vice presidential debate, these tactics that he uses, like this this kind of confidence man 19, brazenness with which he, you know, like do- dodges questions, you know, like immediately tries to kind of like shift the, the goalposts, you know, like and, and talk about something completely different. And the kind of 
calmness with which he lies, you know, like the kind of practiced facial cues that he has, right? It's, you know, he's very good at what he does. Four years ago, that terrified me. And I think, you know, a lot of us and rightfully so, right? I mean, it was convincing to the people it needed to be convincing to. But tonight when I was watching it, you know, I I know that like our hair was all on fire after the last presidential debate. And there was, you know, there's a lot to be worried about right now. But when I was watching Pence today and when I was watching kind of all these kind of well-worn tactics that he's known for, it just rang different to me. It just seemed more hollow. It seemed more transparent and gross and less convincing. And so I, I really, really do wonder if like, he did what he needed to do if anyone was actually buying it. I mean, given the dumpster fire of the last kind of debate, I imagine the one thing that Pence wanted to do was to present a calm face to an otherwise very uncalm face that Trump presented at the presidential debate. But I found I found the whole thing very unconvincing. Yeah. And I don't think anybody got moved by it. I don't think anybody who watches that debate tonight said, oh, I'm going to vote for Senator Harris or I'm going to vote for for Pence. Everybody's mind is made up. Nobody presented anything that would change how you viewed either candidates. Right. There was nothing, no big headline coming out of the debate. I, I, w- I would agree with that. I mean, like, you know, I feel like I mean, these this debate, like almost every other debate, not all debates, but by m- most debates is, you know, kind of a textbook example of kind of a, an old concept that, that a historian Dan Orstein came up with when he called them pseudo events, right? That this is, this is an event that is staged not for like the purposes that we're told, right? This isn't about presenting ideas, debating kind of policies, right? This is two visions of reality blasting themselves out to the people who already live within that reality on either side of the the television screen. But what this vice presidential debate essentially gives to us is a media event that we can talk about for the next week, right? right? We can spend the next week dissecting the ways that Pence or, or Harris kind of answered that, which like, you know, is just part and parcel of the kind of media ecosystem that we have today. But I guess I really just wanted to stress to people that like, you know, underneath all of that right everyone already knows what's going on here they know the stakes they know what these two candidates are about anything that was added um by this debate tonight is really just kind of added fodder for pundits to kind of dissect until we have the next debate it didn't really present any kind of new information or any new arguments um that really dignify people with um you know the kind of respect that they deserve yeah watching pence made me realize just how dangerous this administration is because Trump and Pence are complete opposites in their demeanor, but they both want the same exact thing, don't they? Which is the subjugation of women and hatred for anybody who's different or not white. Do you see anything good about Mike Pence? A lot of people are more frightened of Mike Pence than they are of Donald Trump. And I'm beginning to understand why, because he might just be better at this than Trump is. Well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 an interesting question, right? Because I think that, like, 
you know, especially given the fact that the president currently has a deadly, you know, virus, you know, like there's a lot of trepidation. There's a lot of anxiety about like what would happen if Mike Pence actually took over uh, the presidency. And I largely agree with with your uh, kind of assessment. I think there are things that Trump's brashness and impulsiveness there are ways that he's been able to weaponize that and kind of bulldoze his way to achieving his ends in a way that I don't think Pence would really be able to do. Uh, he, Pence would not be able to play the media the way that Trump does. So that's that's something to consider. It isn't, I guess what I'm saying is that like, it's, it's, it's not a zero sum thing, right? You know, they both kind of have equally maniacal qualities that they bring to this ticket. And I think the the scarier part is like how they actually work in tandem with each other, right? Because Pence has provided that kind of calm face, that kind of principled uh, demeanor that people want to believe is actually kind of behind the scenes in the White House, right? He gives a sense of calm um, where people need it. And Trump gives a sense of brashness where people want it. And those two things working in tandem are really, really dangerous, as we've seen over the past four years. How nervous are you about the Republicans trying to steal this election and not accepting the results? I got a sense that Pence said he will not accept Trump's defeat. I'm very nervous. I mean, I think that's that's probably, you know, the, the thing that I'm most nervous about right now. I mean, like. You know, I, I guess like we don't particularly have the the kind of luxury of being surprised because this was something that Trump kind of even gestured towards in 2016. Right. You know, when when he was talking about how rigged the, the system was in the Republican primaries and then when he won, he was like, well, I don't care anymore because I won. Right. I mean, like he'll do whatever he needs to do to save his own ass. And this is exactly what like the strategy is. Right. Either he wins outright and then he accepts the election, you know, or if it looks at all like he's going to lose, he has spent months casting doubt on the legitimacy of that election. So for him, it's a win win for us. It's lose lose right and you know this is where you were asking me earlier you know about like where working people really fit into this right this is this is really like this is what people need what they deserve what they've been crying out for is you know we're not over there in dc we're not the ones kind of facing these people day in and day out we need them to fight we need them to put up a fight we need them to kind of demonstrate that they're actually going to kind of go to the map for us and our, you know, what's left of our democracy when it really, really. And I think what myself included worried is that the Democrats have signaled time and time again that they will put a premium on decorum over democracy. Right. Well, you got a sense that Senator Harris will put up a fight more than Joe Biden will. But absolutely, I can see the the Trump henchmen stealing the election and Biden backing down because it would be good for the country if, you know, we need consistency. And that's why COVID-19, when when Trump's lungs began to fill with tar, so many Democrats silently thought it was deus machina. You know, we're all looking for this vaccine to save us. It's not going to be the Democrats. It's not going to be our courts. You know, who is going to save us from from, uh, from this man stealing the election? 
and you know the, it, it just I don't see the Democrats protecting us from from fascism. I, and I and I honestly think most Democrats right now are thinking, well, uh, the the Trump people are going to be so weakened by COVID-19 that he can't have his rallies. I think he had 60 rallies in 2016 between October 2nd and Election Day. Now he's too weak to to have a rally. So COVID-19 will, will save the country. I honestly think that's what most Americans are thinking. I think you're I think you're right. I mean, like there's there's a number of kind of things playing out here, right? It's it's not the same, but I, it, it's of a piece of the the kind of Russia investigation, right? I mean, like there is there is a, a deeply invested hope that something in there is going to solve this problem for us and we could, you know, go back to normal. Um, and like I try not to be too cynical in the way that I approach that because I get why people want to go back to normal, right? I mean, I, the main premise of, of my show, Working People, right, is to try to really understand what living in this economy, living in this rigged system, working day in and day out and getting bullshit from your boss, getting you know bullshit from your landlord, like what that does to you on a human level, like what it does to our basic human connections with each other and the ways that we understand our very life purpose, right? Yeah. I say that because like I am trying very hard to understand and I really do empathize with people who are hurting right now and because of the failures of our government. And it's perfectly natural to want, you know, so badly for this nightmare to be over and to life to go back for life to go back to what it was. It's not going to no. Even if Trump dies. It's not going to. No. Right. Even if, you know, like we did impeach the president. It didn't like that deus ex machina did not come. Right. right? And, and you know, I think that you're absolutely right that, you know, we we cannot kind of just rely on the Democrats or really any kind of elected politician to solve this for us. Right. We need to understand that we are the best hope that we've got. If our politicians won't fight for us, then we need to take to the streets and show and force their hand. We need to show them that you serve us, right? You know, you serve us and our families, right? You know, that is your priority, not right. like your own, you know, goddamn chess club and, and drinking club with like, your colleagues across the aisle. If you're not going to fight for us, we're going to show you why you should. Right. Right. Maximilian Alvarez, Alvarez, I'm sorry, is the host of working people and you're the editor-in-chief of real news what is real news new job um so i am i'm the incoming editor-in-chief at the real news network shout out to real news um we are a you know fantastic non-profit non-corporate news network run out of baltimore with a staff that reflects kind of the the diversity and energy and brilliance of this city. Uh, we have a great team of journalists, technicians, and everybody really trying to kind of cover the news by and for working people, right? To really show like what the news and what news media can look like if it is not, you know, driven by corporate advertisers or access journalism um, for 
elite politicians or something like that, but if it actually speaks to what working people face on their daily lives and the results that they want to see uh, in these political struggles, that's the kind of media that we're trying to bring. All right. I'm going to bring in, you're welcome to stick around. I promised everyone who agreed to come on the show tonight that I would stick to the schedule this time so I could get them to come back for the next debate. So I want to stay on schedule. Is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn here? I saw him. He was next up. Are you here? Okay. I don't see the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Do you know? He's He's on mute. He's what? He's here, but he's on mute. He's muted. Can you unmute yourself, the Reverend? I think I just did. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Do you know Maximilian? I wondered. uh, I didn't know him. uh, Now I know him. Okay. Thank you, Maximilian. I hope you come back. Both of you guys have really nailed it tonight. There's no question about it. Well, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for nearly a quarter of a century, was in charge of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Besides being a lawyer, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of, and I hope I'm pronouncing this properly. Correct me if I'm wrong. Christ? Is it pronounced Christ? That is correct. Okay, I got that right. That's correct. Thank you. I knew I would get it right. So what did you see tonight? Did you see a Democratic Party that's going to stand up to the the Trump thugs on November 4th when they refuse to accept the results? No, what I saw was proof positive of the uselessness of vice presidential debates. I mean, with the rare exception of what people remember from 1980, for example, with the the Dan Quayle, uh, you're talking about Jack Kennedy. These are pointless. 88, that's correct, 88. Yeah, time passes so quickly. Yes. Uh, There's nothing. I thought Kamala Harris did a very good job. I had actually forgotten that she was one of the few people, Democrats, who opposed the the new NAFTA, which I think was a terrible piece of legislation. Nancy Pelosi rammed it through, embarrassed Democrats, and gave a huge win to Donald Trump so that people like Mike Pence could explain it just as he did today. This is a great thing for the working people of America. And it wasn't. And Kamala Harris followed the better unions, the ones that didn't give in to this. And uh, I had forgotten that fact. Uh, In terms of who's going to protect us, I think that the most likely scenario in the event of his refusal to leave office is actually going to come this is a great this thing is hard for me to say from the military i just don't think the military is going to put up with this crap of him staying there if he's if he's capable it's only you know a couple of months he could still be heavy breathing but i think that the democrats are not going to come and and what usher him out of the White House? This is never going to happen, and it's part of what uh, what we just heard. I mean, the Democrats are too busy trying to be collaborative. I mean, I hate it every time Joe Biden says he's going to work with across the aisle. I hate that phrase. We don't have time to work across the aisle. We don't have any reason to walk across the aisle. We just have an opportunity as Democrats, if there are enough elected to do something right for a change. And if the people in this country who came out so in such enormous numbers uh, to the protests after Trump took office, if they don't come out, all of us don't come out. 
in similar numbers to demand that the Democrats, assuming they're in power, go and do the things that we want. Universal health care, a real commitment to the environment and making the procedural changes necessary in the courts. I I did lose. I, I think everybody lost the sound during part of the discussion on the Supreme Court. But um, that's something that needs to be addressed. I think there are better answers than the ones that Kamala gave, or at least the part of it that I heard. She should have said when it came to court packing, she should have said, you know, you you pack the courts. She talked about all the in the courts. Court I, I did lose African-Americans. That's a good first point. But I think she needed to say, look, you you pack the Supreme Court itself by denying Merrick Garland a vote for nine months, pack number one, and then rushing Amy Barrett through pack number two. So don't talk to me about packing the courts. And if, in fact, this is what the court looks like, we will put nothing off the table. Nothing off the table. Pence already accused her saying, well, you've effectively said, let's pack the court, which she didn't say. And as I said last week, it's hard to say that even when you use the more polite term, balance the court or expand the court. But you have to say you've muddied the water already. You have done such irresponsible things that we're not taking anything off the table. If you don't say that, you're going to lose. There is nothing that can be done. No formulation of Medicare for all, no universal health care, no environmental change that really makes a difference that will survive a six to three conservative majority on the on the Supreme Court. Nothing, nothing. What about already been poisoned? What about a landslide? What about a Democratic landslide where the Democrats get control of the House and the Senate? There's that famous quote that turns out to be apocryphal where Andrew Jackson said to the chief justice, you've made your ruling now, go enforce it. Andrew Jackson, Donald Trump's favorite uh, president. Apparently, uh, Jackson didn't say that. But if the Democrats win big in in a month... Doesn't the Supreme Court, Marbury versus Madison notwithstanding, doesn't the Supreme Court be so, become somewhat uh, less relevant? Oh, no, I don't think so at all. I think it becomes more relevant. But this assumes something big. I mean, I think the Biden, it, he's going to win. There's no question he's going to win electorally, electorally, as well as in the in the general vote, the popular vote. But I don't think that it's a shoe in that Democrats are going to take the Senate. Uh, So I don't think that all the things that many of us want, the fact that here sitting in the District of Columbia, I can get to Senate Puerto Rico, there will be two Democratic Senate. All these things depend on two things. First of all, that the Democrats take the Senate. And two, that we don't have these people who have already committed to not making any changes. Uh, Senator in Delaware, um, even, you know, even Biden historically has not wanted to expand the court. But you have to do that. The, the courts in this country are so that the cancers metastasized into those courts. So those people who think, well, you know, we'll take everything to court, 
most things, 98% of the cases in this country don't end up at the United States Supreme Court. They're, they stop at those appeals courts. And they are just. Is it safe to say that the big difference between the Democrats is it is is it safe to say that the the primary difference between the Democrats and the Republicans is the Republicans have been taken over by ideologues who know exactly what they want, and the Democrats Mm -hmm. are a coalition of people who are willing to compromise with their own value system that you and I, Reverend aren't on the same page on certain issues. Isn't that what we're up against? It is true, but I I do think that the chances of having the kind of discussion that leads to the right conclusions is only possible if there is a Democratic Senate. And that that Senate is expanded by those four people uh, who would have uh, Puerto Rico and, and here in the District of Columbia. We need four more people. We need a cushion so that a Joe Manchin or others can't just, if we lose them, a Chuck Schumer. Doug Jones. Doug Jones. If we lose them, that's okay because we'll have a cushion. Right. The other thing, though, I do think the the Democrats have been criticized in the last two days here in Washington for even meeting with Amy Barrett. And I think that's wrongheaded because I think you have to meet, you have to try to get her to make commitments. I don't believe that anyone in my experience of decades watching the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, people lie at their confirmation hearings. They lie all the time. I think it's not you should go to questions of character. You should ask her why she brought six of her seven children, knowing that she and her husband, now we know, had tested positive for COVID. But the six kids, as far as we know, did not. So they were being taken into this super spreader event where she knew and he knew, her husband knew, that these kids would be exposed to all these nitwits who do not believe that masks matter. Well, the, and yeah, the second I, thing, I, I wanna, why would... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I, later on, I want to talk about the first meeting that Donald Trump had after he tested positive. He is meeting with his own scientists to push herd immunity. The people who believe in accelerationism, the people who believe, ah, Stephen Miller and now Kellyanne Conway, they all have COVID-19. Chris Christie, nobody's heard from him. He's in a hospital. They're finally going to come to their senses. That's not what the Republicans are pushing. They're pushing herd immunity. They think Stephen Miller his wife had it. Coney Barrett had it. They they think yep. that people get it. They develop antibodies and it's survival of the fittest. It's the only science they're willing to accept. Survival of the fittest. So they're not going to learn their lesson from COVID-19. That's what certain no, people, the only people. I'm sorry. No, I mean, the only people they're pushing who, herd immunity. Yes, yeah, so they don't always call it herd immunity, but that's what they do. And that's what that idiot Steve Atlas, 
the, who is the go-to person. He was, remember, the go-to person on Fox News. And, of course, Trump watched him all the time. He said all the things that Trump wanted to believe. So now he's the guy that actually talks about this ridiculous idea of herd immunity. Herd immunity would could come about in this country if four million people were dead. Four million people were dead. That's the only way in which it could theoretically happen. Yeah. But I think the other thing, if I can't, I think Amy Barrett should be asked this question. She should be asked, of course, would you recuse yourself from any decision involving the 2020 election? And again, whatever she says, I would not necessarily believe it. But to hear Pence tonight say, well, you know, I, I really don't know what she thinks about Roe versus Wade. Sure. Either he's lying or he hasn't read the record. And of course, just in the last 48 hours, we've learned about another thing, a letter that she signed as a Notre Dame law professor in 2006, calling abortion barbaric and causing calling explicitly for its repeal and overturning. So we know exactly everything she's done on the Seventh Circuit demonstrates her hostility to a woman's right to choose every single thing. So that's not a question. And I think even uh, Kamala Harris should have come back and said, I'm sorry, Mr. Vice President, uh, but we do know, we know a lot. And just to talk about the letter, to talk about her rulings in the Seventh Circuit, these are factual things. She knows them. And they're not so deep in the woods that no people don't understand it. I think she tried to avoid uh, going, I, I, as you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of people talking about how their mother, uh, I, she would be proud of me. I don't like to hear, if I ever hear that Joe Biden story again that he told yesterday, again in that town hall, about working across the aisle on the Americans with Disabilities Act. I mean, it's, first of all, I don't even, under, I've heard that story three right. times. May I just I'm say something? I'm not sure I could parse it. May I course. just say something, how proud I am to be talking to you? And I know my mother is looking down on us because she's still alive. She's just haughty and <laughs> condescending. So she's looking yeah. down. Let me bring in Professor Adnan Hussein, who heads the religion department up in Canada at Queen's University. Stay with me, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. I'm going to pose a sure. question to the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, and then I'd like Professor Adnan Hussein to weigh in on it. And then I want to get your impression of what happened tonight. We were talking earlier about the elation that many on the left felt when they learned that Donald Trump tested positive. Nobody wants anybody to, you know, disappear. But uh, you have been the subject. You've talked about this. You have been the subject of are they called imprecatory prayers? Correct. What is an imprecatory yep. prayer? An imprecatory prayer is is uh, actually has references in uh, in the what we Christians call the Old Testament of the Bible, and it is it's calling for the death or serious illness to rain down upon someone uh, who you don't like. And uh, I think I have two imprecatory uh, prayers. I think one is with a guy named Wiley Drake, who is a little ministry out in in uh, California. And the other is, uh, I think he's a, a coach in Ohio. 
a football coach or was a f- football coach. And they've been praying for one of them has been praying also for Barack Obama's death. Uh, so he hasn't, you know, came a little closer to with me, but uh, it hasn't worked. But this, I, you know, it doesn't I had a friend who was also uh, the subject of an imprecatory prayer actually went into the courts in Texas uh, to claim that this was a threat that was that you could litigate in the state of Texas, because if you believe in imprecatory prayers, then it's like saying, I'm going to come with a gun and shoot you. It's just I'm going to pray you to die. So it, it, it's got a routine. It's got a basis in the Bible. It's rarely used, and uh, it doesn't bother me that it's happening because, as I think I also told you, my uh, pagan and Wiccan friends, including those who are followers of the Norse god Thor, have placed a shield of protection around me after the second guy started imprecatory prayers. So... You know, other than how far little, away are we from the Secret Service going after people for making bad prayers? Although I think <laughs> the Secret Service is making bread. I don't think the Secret Service is too fond of Donald Trump. His new uh, code no. name is uh, Patient Zero Concern for Others. <laughs> but yeah. is it against the law to pray for? No, it, no, it isn't. I mean, I would. I'm a great First Amendment supporter, so I, um, of course, you can say what you want, right. and you, if you believe it's going to happen, you can say that. But I, I don't. I don't want to get into that. I do think there are some issues. Though, there's a lot of the dispute about whether uh, Amy Barrett should be the subject of any inquiries regarding her religion, and people say, well, you know, of course not. And the Democrats have always said that. Oh, of course we wouldn't do that. That came up again tonight. But the truth is, we don't really think that. If we think that your religious policies are detrimental to the country, if you were a person who said, you know, I um, I have a deeply held religious belief that um, I should shoot every sixth person I saw. I, I deeply believe it. It's idiosyncratic, but I believe it. Would we say that's not relevant to your consideration as a judge in the United States Supreme Court? So it's a question. What are the things that she believes, not because she's a Catholic or because he's in this spinoff group, but that are so far out of the mainstream? Why wouldn't a Democrat ask that question? Let's bring in Professor Adnan Hussein. Your thoughts on imprecatory prayers. Is it uncommon in the religious world for there to be sanctioned prayers for the demise of somebody? I think uh, all sorts of maledictions, curses, incantations, negative prayers um, have always been a big part of religious culture because you're calling upon forces to try and resolve a situation that seems out of your uh, human social control and that may be to uh, provide protection or it may be, you know, something more aggressive. So you, you, I think we see this happening a lot in the medieval period, for example, um, monks who had forsworn violence, you know, usually they were from the nobility, but they forswore arms and violence and instead took up 
uh, prayer as a weapon on behalf of the Christian faithful, sometimes when they were being oppressed by greedy lords uh, who were stealing their lands and so on, um, they would do one of two things. One is bring the saint out and humiliate the saint, say the saint is being humiliated by the you know, terrible wrongful acts and this would create such a kind of consensus in the broader community that there would be pressure brought to bear on this rogue Lord, or they would actually ritualistically perform curses and maledictions. And sometimes this would frighten the person, you know, who was oppressing them into uh, coming or, uh, you know, coming to the table to negotiate. So I think we've seen that. And I think we're not so far away from that in our current situation, despite our secular politics, when we have people claiming that um, you know, if you give aid and comfort, which could be just expressing political support for a certain position, but giving aid and comfort to the enemy, in other words, criticizing your leader for their policies, uh, this has been used in our political discourse to marginalize that kind of criticism and to say this is something that, even if it may not be criminalized in law, is something that is anathema to public, political, acceptable discourse. And so we see something of a similar kind of dynamic where speech is excitable. It is inciting, and it's sometimes seen as coterminous with violence. And maybe you're not so far off when you say that, um, you know, uh, they may come after you for expressing political positions and for expressing things in, you know, uh, prayer. Religion is so much a part. Uh, I know this is something that the Reverend has fought against uh, for so much of his career, but it's so intertwined in American political discourse, you know, the use and abuse of religion that, um, you know, I think think we have to, you know, take, uh, you know, we should take it at least a little seriously as a phenomenon, even if we don't necessarily think it has efficacy. Explain to me the catch. But I think it could incite people to take up, right? Because they might think that they're, you know, going to be the instrument of these prayers or God's will. And that, I think, is is what's dangerous about it. Right, right, right. Catholicism, you know, I like the Pope. I do. I think I I thought his last encyclical was... I think we should talk about that on Monday's show. I'd be happy to talk about his encyclical. It it was a... He came out against the dogma of neoliberal faith. But Amy Coney Barrett and Mike Pence are both Mm -hmm. Catholics. They sound like evangelicals. When did this start in America when the Catholics, I think Amy Coney Barrett sect speaks in tongues? Is, is that possible that there are Catholics who, who speak in tongues? Yeah. Yes, she does. Already. When did that start? That group does. Well, these uh, kind of break off Catholic, primarily Catholic organizations Hers started in the, about 1970 mm-hmm. uh, in Indiana, but it it um, it has groups around the United States and I guess in other countries. But um, but yeah, it, uh, speaking in tongues, Wasalalia, these are things that are tr- typically a part of what evangelical practice is uh, for Protestants. But it is known in the Catholic uh, communities like this. It's not. You're not going to hear. You're not going to hear uh, 
the Pope talk about it, but it's certainly spoken about by Catholic groups around the United States and elsewhere. I want to get Professor Hussein's impression on the debate, but I went for a walk today near Gracie Mansion by Bill de Blasio's home, and there were some Orthodox Jews hanging out, some wearing masks, others not, and they invited me into the sukkah, which is like this tent. And the, the ones who invited me into the tent were wearing masks, but I looked off to my right and there were some very religious Orthodox Jews. Some of them weren't wearing masks, their kids weren't wearing masks, and some of them were wearing masks, but it uh, wasn't covering their nose. Don't make any jokes about noses. And, and my head, I you know, got on the phone with my mother, who was no fan of the Orthodox Jews. Well, anyway, what is it about religious extremists and an unwillingness to accept science? Well, I think uh, I'm not sure um, that's necessarily a fair general characterization in all historical eras. We would consider, you know, you know, sometimes the medieval era to have been a, a period of faith. And yet, for example, if one was to examine science in the Islamic world in the ninth to the 14th century, there were a lot of advances and they clearly accepted it and found a way to accommodate scientific uh, advances. Um, but I think maybe what it has to do is um, perhaps the way in which science has become its own sort of competing ideology philosophically and uh, you know, that um, if there's an aggressive secularization. And so it perhaps creates this dynamic where uh, people put their faith in faith as opposed to their faith in other forces that are competing, you know, with, with it in ways that it didn't necessarily compete in the past. You know, Maimonides was a religious person. He was also, you know, was the chief, greatest rabbi in Jewish history, one of the great intellectuals. He was also a doctor, a philosopher, you know, a physician, somebody who was, uh, you know, dedicated to science. So he also you know, wasn't an Orthodox Jew living in Brooklyn. Well, that's right. That's, that's why I'm saying is that the context <laughs> seems to matter, you know, uh, you know of, the, of who you're debating and who you're arguing against. But in any case, I would just, you know, say also about the previous evangelical Catholics is that obviously a lot of this stems from reactions and responses by conservatives to Vatican II, uh, the, you know, culture, uh, radical culture shifts of the 1960s and that, you know, they had to make common cause with the other uh, conservative groups in some ways. So they've perhaps modeled one another. The yeah, Reverend Barry W. Lynn, before we get Professor oh, Adnan yeah. Hussein's take on tonight's debate, what what do you think of religious extremism and their is that was I wrong for saying that they deny science, the extremists? Has, oh, that, been your, has that been your experience debating them? Yes, I mean, it, it certainly has been mine. But remember, I'm debating people who are fundamentalists within the mainly Christian tradition, with the exception of Michael Medved, who, who's not even a good movie critic and certainly not a good uh, scientist. But 
Yeah, but you know, Martin Marty, who some of your listeners know about, has written an entire collection of books on fundamentalism. And we like to think that fundamentalism is something it's only it's only in the Jewish tradition, rarely it's in the Christian tradition, the Muslim tradition. But there are fundamentalist Buddhists, there are fundamentalist Hindus. There's that whole movement of thuggies that go out and kill people in the name of Hinduism. So uh, this is something that transcends the Christian problems that we have in this country, but it's, um, and, I, and I think there's a lack of science does tend to follow, certainly does in my experience with Christian fundamentalists here. Uh, Jerry Falwell, you know, he, he never believed in, uh, accepted the evidence for evolution, and I used to talk to him about it, and he, his daughter was going to medical school. I said, well, what is your daughter think about it and she he said she learns what you put into the exams to to make sure that you pass she doesn't accept it either or believe it you know believing is not really what you do about science you accept the evidence or you don't so do they, does, say, did, did jerry fowell really not believe in evolution or did he believe that there are two types of people those who should have knowledge and those who shouldn't you know, I, I honestly think he did not accept the evidence. Uh, just in, then I, I, I have to, to leave. But I, I remember one time. Can I throw you off the show instead? Yes, you can. Okay. Please throw me off okay. the show. All right. It just go will ahead. make me feel better. Just to, no, go throw me off the show. Well, you, I didn't know you had to leave. And it just, it's. No, I, 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 I have abandonment issues. Okay. I'll throw you off instead. I think you're yeah, throw me off, and then I'll, I'll talk to you in a couple of days. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Finish your thought before no, I... I, mean, I, I, re I remember literally being in the green room, the place you wait with guests on the Fox News channel with Falwell one night after the discovery of a very, very important uh, fossil, uh, intermediate fossil between the existence of two fossils. And Jerry Falwell always argued, we don't have enough intermediate fossils. And I... I handed him a New York Times and I said, Jerry, just look at this. You always talk, there aren't enough intermediate fossils. Look at this development. He took the newspaper, he threw it down on the table in front of him, and he said, you know, Barry, I don't look at this stuff. That's kind of the slightly more polite way of saying, don't bother me with the truth. That's Jerry Falwell. I'm entitled to my own facts. I, to, paraphrase <laughs> to paraphrase Mike Pence, who was paraphrasing uh, Senator Moynihan, I think. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Well, thank you. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, will we see you tomorrow? Uh, yes, uh, I believe so. Okay, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn joined us from Washington, D.C. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Besides being an attorney and a member of the Supreme Court Bar, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of, I always have trouble with this word, is it, is it pronounced Christ? Yes, it is. Christ. Okay, thank you, yeah. Reverend. Twice in one night. Now, Reverend, listen to me. Stay, yes. out of tr stay out of trouble, Reverend. Only good trouble. Thank you, Bye. Reverend. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. We're going to go to uh, First Lady Melania Trump in a second, but I wanted to ask Professor Adnan Hussein about the debate just in general. What, what was your impression? Well, I think um, the fly won the debate. 
Um, I think the fly made the greatest impression. Um, and, um, you know, not to make light of it, but, you know, uh, the reverends suggested you shouldn't even bother to have uh, vice presidential debates. And I didn't expect a lot out of it. But, you know, in, on second thought, in the next four years, who are the people who may, given the age and um, mental uh, uh, state of the two uh, pre presidential candidates, who may be really uh, called to exercise great responsibility in each of these administrations, could be these vice presidents. And I would say one is extremely scary and another not very impressive and didn't appear to me to have a real command of the issues, or at least in this kind of a format. Um, I think if you give her a prosecutorial script that she can follow one question logically after another, she can pursue her point very effectively. But when asked to think on her feet in a more spontaneous way and make responses, uh, she seemed to miss a lot of opportunities to really ram a point home and settled for some smug liberal bromides. I think the places where she did well but needed to keep pursuing this is the line that I think Joe Biden started, which was Donald Trump doesn't care about you, American people. And when she was on that kind of a message and illustrating it with, um, you know, lack of concern about pre-existing con uh, conditions in the attempt to repeal the Affordable uh, Care Act uh, through the courts, the court case, she was strong when she said they're coming for you for these various things that was strong, but she didn't kind of come back when he failed to answer the question. He instead was able to turn it around and say, oh, she has not answered the question about packing the court. The previous uh, question, he was asked directly, you know, what is their plan to provide? How are they going to provide for pre-existing condition protection? And of course, he had completely avoided because they have no plan. They're getting rid of it. And she didn't call him on that. She should have turned the tables. She was good when she said that the economy, you know, there are two different ways of measuring the economy. One is about investing in the people and the, you know, the status of how people are doing and Donald Trump's way, which is rich people you know, how the rich are doing. But she could have said, that's why he's obsessed by the stock market. How many of you care about the stock market? Does that affect you on a daily you know, basis? She's not able to really ram these points home. And then the last thing that she did that I thought was reasonably uh, decent were was talking about the taxes, um, you know, Donald Trump. But again, connect it with the health care. The man got the best health care because we have a two-tier system. But that was actually public you know, government health care at Walter right. Reed, which he hasn't right. even paid into, you know, $750 this right. year and sometimes not paying any. So he's getting free health care, right. not even paying taxes for it. Um, and, you know, at the same time, he wants to defund everybody else's health care and remove the protection. So I feel like there were certain things she did well, but in general, uh, she dropped the ball. And of course, she was attacked on her record and is not the person to really prosecute some of these points because of hers. And I really didn't like, but of course, why would I like the whole bipartisan Joe and trotting out a litany of all the security state apparatus, you know, and military commanders who are supporting Joe. I mean, what's she gonna say next? The CIA is for Joe Biden, <laughs> vote for him, America. I mean, this is kind of ridiculous. Right. So 
What uh, last thing that I'll say is just about Pence and why he's so scary. When I heard that Donald Trump was uh, had contracted uh, COVID, of course, there was a little bit of a brief freeze on of like the enjoying the fact that the person who has disdained Americans getting it and done nothing to prevent them really substantially from getting it has now had it. But then I thought, you know, the biggest disaster is somebody like Pence actually getting his reigns on power because he is a smooth operator and he is the true conservative on every level. He's an economic libertarian, you know, more than a neoliberal. He's a free market extremist. And that was, you know, some of the answers he came up with about our air is, you know, doing better. And it's all because of the free market solutions and all of this. He's crazy on that. And I felt like what he was doing was trying to run he they can't run on their record except when they lie utterly about it so unless they're called on it he can get away with it but if he's called on it he can't run on his record so then he pivots and who he's running against is china isis the green new deal and then the funniest one tax and spenders you know Mm -hmm. going back to that economic libertarian so it seems like that's who he wants to run against And of course, he did a little bit less of the law and order um, uh, exploiting the Antifa, but that is clearly the last plank of who they're running against. They don't want to run against Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, although they do have some things to say about their awful records, but they do want to run against China, you know, ISIS, Green New Deal and tax and spend Democrats. Yeah. Did they move anybody in either direction tonight? Well, I think if, yeah, I think these mythical uh, unaligned voters, I don't know if they exist. Uh, if they do, maybe it's uh, women in the suburbs, middle class women in the suburbs, college educated, you know, uh, this sort of uh, demographic. Um, they might have been so put off by Trump that even uh, Pence's um, kind of slimy but smooth competence and being able to push essentially, he's a master really of the politics of grievance. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he just raises every sort of grievance um, about, you know, the poor Christians who are being attacked for their faith, the, you know, Republicans who never, the media never allows, uh, you know, us to, uh, you know, express ourselves. Uh, they always report dishonestly about what we've said, etc. He's really good at that. Um, I don't think he was compelling enough to, to swing anybody, but I do think that Kamala Harris she could have won this debate. I don't think she she won it. Yeah. In fact, the I'm talking, I'm talking may have brought the white male vote back to Trump. Unfortunately, I, I, I don't know what the point of that was. You know, um, go ahead and make your points instead of wasting 15, 20 seconds. And I think part of it is she's not very good on her feet. She didn't really have a lot um, to say in direct response when she had some set pieces. She was strong. The ones I mentioned, those were clearly prepared ahead of time. Um, But, you know, when she said the vaccine question, you you already in your monologue mentioned, you know, this undermining of the max of the vaccine, you know, is true. It's like these agricultural products you're not supposed to say are are bad for you or you get in trouble in some states. Um, It doesn't even exist yet. 
And she didn't make very clear. She should have said something like, why would I believe Donald Trump about the efficacy of a vaccine when this is the man who encouraged you all to inject yourselves with bleach? Right. You know, just be strong. She just wasn't strong enough. Um, so that's, I think, where she dropped the ball. Right. Well, I guess uh, Pete Buttigieg was the Pence stand-in for the debate. He was the one who... Uh, not 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 bad. Indianans, uh, I guess, uh, you know, they know one another. He could probably do the accent uh, fairly well. And uh, probably he, you know, could recite chapter and verse on neoliberalism. Yeah. So the only difference is Mayor Pete is out of the closet and Mike Pence isn't. So that was the uh, well, anyway, Professor Adnan Hussein, I, I want tomorrow if, if you have time to stop by the show, I want to hear about. Uh, Professor Juan Cole, your, your big thing with Juan Cole. That sounded really interesting. I know how busy you are. Professor Adnan Hussein is the chairman of the religion department up in Ontario, Canada at Queen's University. And he's got an attic where he's going to hide me and Harvey J.K. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Adnan Hussein. Thank you. We, we have Professor Marianne Cummings here. Uh, can I first, do you mind, Professor Marianne Cummings, if I go to Washington, D.C., where First Lady and Melania Trump is standing by? Oh, ask her how she is. I'm worried about her. Well, let's go to Washington, D.C. I, I am so honored. This is such a, a special, special night. Please welcome the First Lady of the United States, Melania Trump. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't speak Slovenian. Can you speak English? Okay, and I don't under I don't understand the southern oh, dialect. Thank you, David. Oh, there Baby, you go. Thank you for keeping me waiting. I could have had two abortions in the time waiting for you. Oh, I'm sorry to keep you waiting, Melania. Uh, how? Oh, that that does not sound. That, that is that. Oh, oh, Melania, Melania, Did you watch the VP debate? Yes, Melania, first lady, watch the VD debate. The VD debate. Yes, baby. And by VD, I mean venereal disease. Mm. And by debate, I mean, does Melania have it? Does she not? Where did Melania get it? And from who? Melania has a lot of backstory. Yes, I, 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 I'm sorry, I didn't make myself clear. I, I asked you about the vice presidential debate tonight. That was what I wanted to know about. Oh, David, these fucking liberals drive me crazy. What a fucking joke, fucking waste of time. Really? Yes, Kamala was a prostitute from San Francisco. A, a what? A prostitute. Yes, she was a prostitute, a, a prosecutor in San Francisco. Prostitute. Yes. She put children in cages for truancy. Hmm. 
Well. and I put our children in cages because they are not right. There's a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but what is your major takeaway from the debate, First Lady? She's a fucking porn hooker. <laughs> <laughs> She's a senator. Fuck these crystal knock decoration shit. <laughs> fucking... Fucking toner gave me the virus for the third time this week, and it's only Monday. <laughs> Today's Wednesday. Today's oh, Wednesday. I'm sick. My lungs are filled with fluid. Oh, really? Yes, Davey. Not from the virus. I just blew Bill Barr. <laughs> the attorney general. You, you blew him. Yeah. How, how are you feeling? Seriously, how are you feeling? <laughs> How are you feeling? I am flat on my back. Uh, I hope to be back on my knees in no time. Uh, yes, we, we want you to get back to work, First Lady Melania Trump. Well, that is all I have on the venereal debate. You come align my teats now? <laughs> what? Is that Hawaiian? Are you speaking Hawaiian? You Kamala my teeth now? Is that that I don't think it's Kamala Harris is her name. Kamala. What did you Kamala say? Kamala on my teeth. I, I thank you. No, thank you. I, I, I we're we're doing a show. Thank you, Melania Trump, first lady. Oh, oh thank you, David. Remember, be best. Who gives a fuck about the Christmas shit? <laughs> Don't get sick and oh. heil Hitler. Thank you. That was, Jim, that was the best one. That was that was the best one. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, I don't know what happened. That was the best one. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Professor Marianne Cummings. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Melania. First Lady Melania. Good night. Good night. Good night, everyone. And feel better, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's, we have uh, Emil Guillermo from the PETA podcast here, Jim Earl. Let's go to Aurora, Illinois, where physics professor Marianne Cummings is standing by. I call her the commish. For those of you who are new to our show, Professor Mary Ann Cummings was a delegate to the 2016 uh, Democratic Convention. She was working for Bernie Sanders. Bernie said run, and Professor Mary Ann Cummings ran, and she got elected to be one of the Parks Commissioners for Aurora, Illinois. And you have a park. There's a park that's you're responsible for. That is right. Uh, when I moved into my neighborhood just a few blocks down my street, there was the old Copley Hospital, which everyone in town that had, was born and raised here had something to do with. They were born there. They got their broken arm fixed there, whatever. Their heart attack was happening. And then the Copley moved. They moved out of these buildings 20 years ago, and they sat abandoned for 20 years. And you can go online, you can go to YouTube, Copley Hospital Aurora, and get some, as I said, American Horror Story quality videos of people going through this creepy old buildings. But um, 
I had pushed, as Park District Commissioner, I had pushed the Park District to go ahead and try to get a park, at least at one end of it. The buildings are all being rehabbed on the far side. It stopped for COVID, but we took the initiative. We got a grant. It's a federal grant administered through the states. It's called um, OSLAD Open Spaces Land Acquisition and Development. And specifically for underserved areas like my neighborhood, which is poor, don't have green spaces. And there was like years of haggle, but it is going in right now as we speak. It has to be in. So I'm probably going to do like a little Amy Poehler type video in front of it like this past week. It's going to be beautiful weather this coming weekend. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, and I'm actually, that's real. I'm I'm getting, I'm in the neighborhood getting signatures to get on the ballot in the early spring. So some of us have activities which allow us to look past this November. Right. Which is mentally very, very healthy. It's important to, to do something and to have some kind of legacy that you can point to and, Mm -hmm. and not feel powerless. And it means acting locally. And now about that, and I do want to say a couple things about that. Um, before we were elected, it was the first time there was an elected board. Before it had been pretty much appointees by the counties, and they were just kind of county flunkies. And uh, every t- year when I go through the budget, I look at the uh, pension of a former executive director of the park district who was making $400, $450,000 a year. And they got a board together just to approve that for him. Well, not anymore. Um, I pushed back when the Park District a couple of years ago wanted an exemption from the minimum wage law that's going get, being enacted in, in uh, Illinois. And even though all these people I like on the executive board, I'm a non-paid elected official. These guys are actually employees. And, uh, and I told them that if there's going to be any limit on salaries, it's going to come from the top down. Great. And even though all of you could be making multiples more in the private sector than that. So I did that. All second graders in my area can learn how to swim regardless of the ability, family's ability to pay, and it's through the schools. Okay, so these are kind of mundane issues, but my God, these are the kind of things that change communities. And it's such low-hanging fruit. It is unbelievable the things you can get done. I can sit on the mayor's desk, literally. I can go in there and say, I am not leaving until we have a discussion. It's fun. Right. <laughs> and nobody thinks to run for these positions. It but gets rid to- of the generalized anxiety that your television mm-hmm. creates. You turn on the TV oh. and you're powerless because it's not real. I mean, Trump is oh, real yeah. and the Republicans are real, but you can't really do anything, but you can right. do something locally. Let me do this because I want to run a tight ship tonight right. and stay on schedule. And we're a little behind joining us from Toronto is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks. It's the largest comedy chain in North America. Please welcome Mark Breslin. <laughs> We will come back to Professor Marianne uh, a little later on, but I want to stay on schedule. Thank you, <laughs> Professor Marianne. And Emil Guillermo is also coming up and Jim Earl and all the, the brilliant people who I'm lucky enough to get to do this show. Mark Breslin. They're in the, in, the, in the safety of Canada. Yes. Looking down upon us. 
with a fence between us. A plexiglass fence, too. Yes. What did you think? Did you feel more hopeful for this country? Did you think? No. No. I, 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 that debate meant very little. Um, it, it had small effects, I suppose. Um, yeah, what I really wanted was for Kamala to come out swinging. And she didn't come out swinging because she's a front runner. And she played it like a front runner, which is better to not have anything negative than to have something really positive happen. Right. Um, she showed she was competent. She's a competent debater. I thought Pence is a liar, but a competent liar, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, Trump, who's an incompetent liar. Um, so I don't know which is worse. Uh, what I want to know is how many people on the panel so far have talked about the fly on his head? There was a brief mention of the fly. Only a brief mention. Yes. Because if you go on if you go on Twitter, if you go on Facebook, that's all anybody wants to talk about. Right. And the obvious joke about, well, you know, flies are attracted to poo. So, oh, that's um, good. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, well, there's a thousand variations of that joke going on right now to the point where it became a hack within three minutes. I would, right? I would think that Mike Pence didn't pay any attention to the fly because it was it wasn't unzipped. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't think he would do the um, uh, debate at all with Harris because he would have been in the same room with an uh, with a ma- uh, an unmarried woman or a married woman. Right. And he's not supposed to do that. Right. But uh, I guess he he. Uh, put away his faith for just a moment. Um, it was an incredibly boring debate, um, I suppose, which is true of so many debates. When you watch Canadian debates, and we have these as well um, for our elections, except there's more than two people on, on on the dais. It's usually four, maybe five. They are excruciatingly boring um, and civilized. And this was kind of civilized to a fault. I wanted to see a little... A little, you know, dusting up and I didn't get it and nobody got that. So I don't think it moved the needle one way or the other. Um, people who like him will still like him. People who like her will still like her and things will just move on. There were almost no moments and you want this in a debate. You know, you want that Lloyd Benson uh, moment in the debate. I knew Jack Kennedy. You are no Jack Kennedy. You didn't get that. You didn't get that at all. And I know that Kamala is capable of that because right. I've seen her in other debates do that. And I wish she had done it on this one. Yeah, I agree with you. She was playing it safe because this is now Biden's election to let get stolen. It's it's like yeah, right. he's he's going to just let them let them steal it. Is it is it too hard for Trump to steal this election? No, it feels like it. It feels like I don't I don't think he can steal it. Um, I think he will lose it fair and square. Um, I think he will grouse about it and cause as much rancor as possible. But I think he will leave peacefully because only if he leaves peacefully can he set up his next move. Um, And by the way, speaking of next move, I know you don't like Biden. I'm not crazy about him either, but this is not about 2020. This is the defeat of a certain kind of republicanism in two elections. It's 2024 where you're going to get the kind of candidate and the kind of president, hopefully, that you really want, which is a Bernie Sanders style president. And I don't think it'll be Bernie because he'll just be too old. I don't see that happening in this country. Okay, Uh, that's a nice that's easy for you to envision for us. And thank you. But you're in Canada where the Enlightenment thrives here in the United States, 
we are we're a third world country now. Our job is to consume. Don't say that, David. You're you're a fourth world country. Oh, thank you. Don't give yourself so much credit. Come on. Our job is to consume, say stupid and feed the military industrial complex and not question the titans of Wall Street. That's our job. That your is, job is to figure out how you can move to New Zealand. I that is your job. <laughs> tell me how the comedy Canada. club. I know you love Canada, but New Zealand is everything Canada is and more. Do you have an anti-masker who's a politician the way no. Donald Trump is? No, no, no. The most conservative politician will wear a mask. The, the most conservative politician will wear a mask. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, absolutely. Right. It was never politicized here. It was always a matter of public health. And the only people complaining about it who have any credibility just say that it's annoying. Um, and it is annoying to wear for any length of time. I feel really badly for people who are workers that have to wear that thing 12 hours uh, twelve hours straight. I wear it when I go inside, which is for 20 minutes at a time. And I bristle at that. But I don't bristle about it because it's all part of some government control. I just bristle about it because I have to breathe my own stinky breath. Right. Right. I really got some insight into the bully pulpit because Donald Trump comes home Monday night and rips the mask off. And I thought, okay, that was dramatic. Then the next day I start walking around New York City, which is pretty blue. There were more and more people not wearing masks. And And you think that that's because of Trump and yes. what Trump did? Yes. Wow. Absolutely. Hard to believe in New York City. I was I shocked. I was I, shocked. I believe that the president of the United States, even though I don't trust him, he has the power of persuasion. And if he rips off the mask, he's giving license to all the other idiots who live in New York City to go fine. maskless the same way. He gives license to set fire to a mosque and shoot up a synagogue. Does it work the other way? If Biden wins and wears a mask, will everyone want to emulate him? No, I think that's because that's a point that Kamala did not make when they asked her, you know, what is your administration going to do? She never said, well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to lead by example. And I thought that that was would have been a really good answer or part of an answer. She didn't say that. But I'm wondering whether you think that that would might be true, that if the the president of the United States wears a mask all the time and his administration wears a mask all the time, whether people will go, I guess we should wear the mask. It's one of the few saving graces of the Obama administration. You know, we're coming to crunch time. I have to find a reason to vote for Biden and to tell people to vote for Biden. I don't need a father. I had a father. I think it's unhealthy for the people to take their cues from their leader. That being said, when you look at Trump and you see how his behavior wags the behavior of others, there is something to be said about a president who is a role model. That's probably the one of the few nice things I can say about Biden and Obama. They are role models. Well, sure, especially if you have children. Because right. if you have children, you ask this question. Do I want my child to grow up to be like this leader? And right. of course, with Trump, there's not even a question. So I think that that's, 
I think that that's part of it. Um, look, there are people um, who uh, who will not wear masks uh, in in Toronto. I walk out into the street. I see lots of people not wearing masks. Um, but it isn't because the leader isn't wearing a mask. They just think if they dipsy doodle around the crowds, they can probably somehow avoid people enough not to have to put the mask on. Right. But I do know that it is now it's it's the law that you have to wear the mask indoors. I don't know what the law is in New York State or New York City. I don't know if it's a municipal or a, um, a state or a federal law that would uh, be responsible for that. But here um, it's a um, it's a municipal law and the municipal law is you can't get in to any place without wearing the mask. We are discovering that a mask is more powerful than a vaccine, that you can you can get rid of this virus if everyone wore a mask and washed their hands. The, the, the vaccine, if we're lucky, will work on, what, 70 percent of the yeah. people who get it. A, a mask is almost they, they 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 are pretty certain that it's almost foolproof. And the only reason we were told not to wear masks is because they were afraid there weren't enough masks for healthcare workers. So they lied to us about the masks so that the, the healthcare workers would get them. You need to wear a mask. So when the president rips that mask off, thousands of people are dead because of that. Thousands of people are dead because of that. He is well, the our prime minister. Is, our prime minister is obviously wearing a mask because uh, otherwise he can't, uh, you know, uh, eliminate the look of the black, uh, the black face that he wears. <laughs> so for him, it's a political opportunity. Right. Right. Are the clubs, how are the clubs? They're opening slowly, right? They're opening slowly. Um, lots of social distancing, got to wear a mask, got to do all kinds of things. The, you know, the uh, uh, menus are, are throwaways. I mean, I could go on and on and on with all the tiny little things. So far, there have been no incidents in any of my clubs. Um, there have been, inc- been five incidents in my health club, and they've closed it down. What do you mean incidences? In they found five instance, instances of COVID. Uh, in the uh, health club through contact tracing, and they closed my health club down. Is this a, what kind of health club is this? It's a fancy tennis club. Okay. I say fancy because it's sort of important because you'd think those kinds of people would be, they got a lot to live for. <laughs> you'd think that they right. would be more careful. Well, they, but they also think they're immune. There's an arrogance Probably. that comes with yeah, it. Yeah, I guess so. Or they just didn't wash their hands, the filthy buggers. Right. Before you go... Has yeah. comedy, are you noticing anything different watching comedy? No. Um, the same jokes work. Um, people are still interested in sex, family, pop culture, um, uh, relationships, uh, advertising, a little bit of politics. It's, it's, it's the same mix. It hasn't changed, except most people have to make a couple of COVID jokes when they get up just to right. sort of get it out of the way. Great. Nobody wants to hear a whole set of, of COVID stuff. Nobody. Right. Including me. Uh, Professor Ann Lee is saying that, according to a CNN poll, that Senator Harris won by 21 points. But that's CNN. Okay. You have to be careful because um, they only canvass people who are watching CNN, and the people who watch CNN tend to be Democratic. Right. Right. I, I thought that... 
good. I thought she won, but not by much. It didn't feel like it was a rout. The well, other the other night, it was a rout. That that Biden won. Yeah, it was yeah. a rout. There was no question. Yeah. It, it, Trump made a fool of himself. Pence did not make a fool of himself. He's just. Um, I'm just convinced that he's like the Stepford uh, the Stepford politician. Yeah. And you know, if you cut into him, you'd see wires and <laughs> and, and stuff in there and plexiglass. Thank and you, plexiglass. Mark Breslin. It's always an You're honor. Welcome. Thank you. I, I know it's a late night for everybody, so thank you for stopping by. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Let us now go to California where Emil Guillermo is standing by. He is the host of the PETA podcast, and he's also a brilliant journalist. Thank you. What did you think of the debate? Well, I could have just seen the whole thing with the with the sound down and I could have listened to you on YouTube or ever because, you know, you didn't really need the sound. The the subtext, the great thing about the debate was really the, the optics, the pictures, right? We had the first a female black uh, candidate who with uh, uh, Asian roots. Her mother is from uh, from India. You got her. Uh, Harris mentioned her mother, you know, giving giving labor in uh, Kaiser and Oakland. I mean, this is historic for people of color who have been who've been told by the demographers since 1989 that America would become majority minority by 2050. They revised that and said 2030. And this was it. This was the moment. And to see Harris there, it's just a picture of her debating the guy who looks like, you know, that old advertisement, the man from Glad. Doesn't pants mm-hmm. remind man from Glad? And then to yeah. see the fly. The fly really was the most, and it was very optic, you know, very optical to see the fly. Just, it wasn't doing the backstroke. I, I, I stopped the tape. <laughs> I went up and looked. The fly was not doing the backstroke. It was just dead. And, you know, as a PETA, as a PETA uh, podcast host, I, you know, my job is to make sure that all the hair products were not tested on animals. I cannot verify that with any of the candidates, but Trump did have a fly or Trump, a pants did have a fly. Because Steve Miller is in quarantine and, you know, that's what he lives on. He would have eaten that fly. He would have. He may, I just, you know, that was the bright spot to see that that fly right. on, on pants. Anyway, look, uh, the optics of it, of seeing this charismatic, smart woman, you know, I disagree slightly with what Mark said. Uh, Kamala Harris being ahead of the game, you know, with Biden, they're ahead by points. She didn't have to risk it. But there was a moment when she was being lectured by Pence, when she looked to Pence and said, don't lecture. I don't need to be lectured by you. And she got out her her bona fides as attorney general. So I thought she did push back. You know, she's not deferential. If anyone was deferential, it was a damn moderator. Now, look, David. Uh, when you knew me, when I was, uh, you know, in, in television journalism in San Francisco, I moderated some debates in uh, like the I, I moderated a, gub- a gubernatorial debate for the ethnic media, the gubernatorial debate in California. Uh, uh, I, I moderated a senatorial debate, some congressional debates. When you're a mod- moderator, the key phrase you say is, sir, time, time, David, time. David, time, please, David, time. That's what you. That's what you say. You, you know, you got one eye on the candidates, one eye on your on your stopwatch, and you want to keep everyone to time, and everyone goes over. 
and a good moderator is like, you know, slaps him silly and says, hey, look, shut up, you know, and I was waiting for Susan Pace to do that, but she was too nice, too deferential. And maybe it's because she's still a working journalist and she has to be beholden to these guys for 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 answers. So I think they should have. They should have a panel of journalists who right. will ask the questions, and they should have a a person who has moderated before who doesn't give up, you know, about whether or not these guys uh, will will talk to them later. Because when I'm the moderator, I'm in control, and they will shut that. You know, right. I will control them. I will yank their chain. They right. need a moderator right. like that, and that was the that was the reason why uh, Pence did all the. I'm going to answer this question in this segment, taking away from this question. He did a lot of that hopscotching, and that on debate points, National Forensic League, that would be points off. So, uh, in a close debate, Harris won on style and substance. Boy, I think Harris said fracking more times in this debate than, than she has ever in her life. You know, but, they're winning in Pennsylvania, yeah. so they don't need to support fracking. And I've looked at polls that show the people of Pennsylvania are not that keen on fracking. They've they've been fracked and they learned what fracking does. Most know, David. You drive through Pennsylvania, you go to the truck stops, and there are all these pro fracking T-shirts you could pick up at the at the Flying Jays and at the Pilots, and and I just think that you know it's good. But you're right, they're ahead, so they don't have to. But, but they should. I'm telling you, there are polls that show most registered Democrats, most registered voters, are iffy when it comes to fracking. Fracking has been revealed to the people of Pennsylvania. They're not collecting the royalties they were promised. Their water is poisoned. Their faucets are on fire. The people of Pennsylvania have wised up to the lie of fracking. And maybe in 10 years, they'll have earthquakes in Pennsylvania because of fracking. You know, I mean, no, I, I agree with you. But I just think that the debate was interesting because once you get into the COVID stuff and once you get into the taxes and she even mentioned the 400 million that Trump will owe. I mean, you cannot Trump Pence could not spin the Trump legacy uh, to his advantage. And. You know, but he's this old white guy. I I just don't think he scores any points unless he demolishes uh, and crumbles Harris and gets. And he could not dispatch her that way. It was like a prize fight. He had to he had to beat up on her, and he he did in a polite way, but not enough. She was standing at the end, and I think she wins on style, on points, on the issues, and just for the image of being uh, a person of color. Even though, look. I, People in California have known her since her San Francisco days. And I, when I wrote a column in San Francisco, I, I picked a, I had a, a fight with her over how she treated Asian Americans, over how Asian Americans were beaten up in a neighborhood fight in, in the Sunset District in San Francisco. And she did not prosecute. And we saw each other at a party and we just sort of gave each other this weird stare because we didn't want, we wanted to avoid each other. So we've had these disagreements. But here's the thing about, Kamala Harris, she will say what she has to say to win. She is the optimal uh, politician. And so, you know, she's left today. She's right. She's, you know, ask her about her her background with putting away black people. Ask her about, you know, it's she 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 got into trouble in her presidential campaign because how she presented herself by people who knew her. I'm for Medicare for all. For all those issues. I'm for busing when I was being bussed. 
But I was that David, girl, but I'm not for busing now. David, but here's the thing about politicians. Look, you're going to have polarities. You're going to have, the, you know, if you're going to insist on being intransigent, it's going to be like dance, two poles dancing. You got to be a little flexible to get that compromise to get you to solutions. And when you're these two intractable poles, which, you know, I like to see Mike Pence, but I wouldn't like to see him in Dancing with the Stars. You know, Kamala is a dancer. She'll well, dance. wait a second. Wait, wait, wait a second for one second. Wait a second yeah. for one second there. One sure. second. When Trump and Pence. Well, Pence, you know where they stand, don't you? Yeah, well, that's true. And they're not moving. You know they're where they're they, Right. They, they're, not, <laughs> they're not moving off and they're not coming coming leftward. Right. Kamala goes everywhere. As as many people know, so does Obama. Look, master deporter. You know, he, he and this is the week, I think, when when Trump has put out the word that ICE is going to come to your community. If you're in a sanctuary city, they're coming for you. And the whole idea about sanctuary cities is that everyone stay in their lane. Local police will not help the feds because we have our 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 financial priorities and we're not going to do uh immigration work that's the feds feds idea that's a feds job so that's the idea of sanctuary but this is the week that ice has been given you know has put out the word that they're coming out i'm just saying look uh i i i think that kamala harris is she's you know what what's hillary clinton would say oh compromise isn't that bad there's some good compromise uh, and she is willing to say what she will to win. And if she's on your side or working for you at some point, and I, I guess you would have to say she is at this point. I mean, she's on the side of good, which is to replace the person there now. Uh, I think that uh, I, I think it's great that she won tonight. I I, I, I don't know if it's going to make a difference among the undecideds, the few undecideds that, that exist, but um I, you know, I, I think it, this for me as a person of color who've covered, who's covered uh, this idea of the changing evolution of American society. This is a real breakthrough to see a, a, a an Indian Asian woman, part black, mixed heritage, the miscegenation that America has fought for, for decades. My, when my father came in 1928, what did he find? Anti-miscegenation laws. You cannot marry white people. You cannot mix. You cannot, you know. And here we have the American miscegenation you know, on display. You know, di- this is diversity. And that should be uh, that should be the name of like a show that we do for Fox News. Call it Miscegenation. And it's... <laughs> I just think that, that that's what, you know, so for as much as I've, I've had some, you know, uh, some conflicts with Kamala at the, at the end, you know, that if you're going to play co- politics, you got to, you know, smile, don't hold grudges and keep looking forward to uh, the, the next fight. And uh, I think that she comported herself well. And the polls are showing that, that Biden and Harris are, are ahead. So. I, I unfortunately, I agree with you 100 percent. I can't speak to how it feels to seeing a an Asian woman on the debate stage. I, I can speak to how it feels to see a woman on the. the uh, but uh, well, look, here, here's the thing. David, what does yeah. that do? What I mean, you, well, you brought 
people see her at, look, I'm a Filipino, right? You're not going to see a Filipino up on that debate. You did, you did see once there was a weekend anchor for CBS news was moderating once and she's been since demoted to the cable stuff. But you know, uh, when you see that, it just, you feel like you belong. That's why a lot of Asian Americans, one of their big political issues is get more Asian movie stars. Believe it. That's one of the things they say in surveys. They say, we want to see more Asians on TV. We want to see more Asians in the movies. You know, more. But does more that make life better for Asians when well, she's. It, it should. I mean, they're represented. I mean, an argument could be made that African Americans were worse off well, when Obama left well, office than when he started. Well, I'm, I'm saying that, you know, considering culturally how African Americans are generally much more. Uh, integrated in the show business and Filipinos, there's still a lot of, you know, look at how overall, how African-Americans are treated in society. So I guess that generalization only goes so far. And, right. uh, but, but it can work. It can, and, and I'm just saying when, when Asians see uh, another Asian up there, it, and you're a young, if you're a young Indian girl, if you're a young Asian American woman, a girl rather, and you're looking at, at, at Kamala Harris, that's hope. That's real hope. And, you know, and, and here's the other thing I was going to say. She wasn't speaking with an accent. She wasn't speaking like she was a foreigner. She was, you know, because she went to, you know, an HBCU. She went to Hastings School of Law in San Francisco. She spoke just like the other white folks. And isn't that just grand? We're just like you at some point. You know, we are the universal and we're the universal elite that's going to lead the way. Right? right. And you can't discriminate us based on color, maybe on our issues. But now it's now it's that level playing field. And so, you know, as much as I've tangled with uh, Kamala in the past, I, I cheered her. Well, I didn't cheer her on, but I she, she, she was admirable in, okay. in how she dispatched uh, her pets. Let me bring in Alan Minsky. He's the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. We've been on since the debate. So we're getting reports that the consensus is that Kamala won. What is your sense? No question. Yeah, no, I sort of picked that up. I made a really good dinner for myself over the last hour. So I focused on that. What did you have? Oh, just pasta with a nice, uh, you know, sort of vegetable sauce with mushroom base. So really nice. Do you have garlic in it? A lot of garlic, yeah. You, yeah, see, you don't garlic need garlic. Huh? No, you need garlic, David. No, you, you need don't. Garlic. No. Yeah, you yeah. need garlic. Garlic, a- it, it kills the flavor of the vegetables. No, no, no. You need garlic. Garlic's a helper. It's no, a garlic helper. is yeah. bad. And so it's, you know, COVID-19, I think. Like Emil, I may have, uh, I know Emil knows that he has had uh, first-hand experiences with, with Kamala Harris. My father was uh, Kamala Harris's professor back at UC Berkeley. And uh, there are rumors that we might have even had a play date when we were infants. Wow. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but then my dad left Berkeley. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know. Um, Did you have a Minsky uh, moment with her? <laughs> well, I, no, I can't speak to that at all. No, they, um, who knows, right? She was nine months older than me. Oh, okay. She is. She still is that, by, by the way. She's still That's nine amazing. months older than me. So. <laughs> she, um, her dad is a tremendous economist uh, at Stanford. Um, I, I don't think they're that close. She was, of course, they were divorced, and her mom, she lived in, in Canada for yeah. much, of her, much of her youth in, in Montreal, I believe. And um, and I've not ever met her since. So and her mom <laughs> I mean, 
is a scientist, correct? She was well, a cancer, uh, an yes. oncologist, I think. Right. Two, br- two brilliant parents. So she's absolutely. a product of the meritocracy. Um, I think they met at UC Berkeley. Uh-huh. But I could be mistaken there. I don't know. You know, I, I was very young at the time. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, I, I think her assignment's difficult uh, on a night like this. Um, obviously, I, you know, she was she was a formidable opponent during the early phases of the presidential election for those of us who were who were supporting Bernie with, you know, Elizabeth Warren as second choice. And, you know, in, in the way that, you know, PDA and, and most of our political allies did view Kamala Harris at the time was, you know, if she was going to be the person who was going to win the nomination. And, and we knew that she had a lot of backing, a heck of a lot of backing. That, you know, she sort of represented the somewhat more liberal side of the political establishment that was providing her with a lot of funding for her campaigns. Um, somebody's writing in there in the chat, which unfortunately I can read. I don't really like don't read the chat. chat. Um, somebody notes that, that her, her father, uh, that like Buttigieg's dad, was something of a Marxist. Um, I mean, you're going to have to uh, look into that specifically for um, Don Harris. Uh, but he definitely published a monthly review um, and was, uh, you know, somebody who did a lot of third world developmental economics. Um, and Stanford, for what it's worth, was uh, was a department that had a good number of radical economists in it. And, and my sense is that he is uh, somebody who would be seen um, very, very, uh, uh, you know, very critical of, of neoliberal capitalism throughout his long career. But so she's a product of the San Francisco political machine which mm-hmm. is emblematic of neoliberal dogma. Willie mm-hmm. Brown, That's Pelosi. What I, think, what, I think can, what I think can be said, though, favorably from the perspective of an organization like PDA about Kamala Harris, who could be president very soon, is that she did have a progressive voting record in the Senate. That is true. Now, once she became Biden's VP, that seemed to break. And not only as a, as a candidate, I mean, as a, as a presidential candidate, she was more of a moderate Democrat. But then she even had a very conspicuous vote, which I doubt she would have voted that way before she was Biden's VP, which was the one about taking 10 percent of the Bernie Sanders actually introduced the bill, 10 percent of the Pentagon spending and uh, deploying it for uh, emergency COVID re- relief response. And she voted with the Pentagon on that, um, which ran a little bit contrast to her voting records. Of course, votes in the Senate like that are almost wholly symbolic because McConnell's never going to let him go through, right? Um, Amy Klobuchar, for instance, actually voted with Bernie Sanders on that. Really? Um, yeah. And, and but the thing about Kamala Harris, I think, as a prospect, as a possible president, I think a lot of the tensions, and this goes a little bit to the tension of her performance tonight. I mean, there are a lot of sort of things she's having to juggle as she's presenting herself to the public as a, as a political figure. And I think my sense of her... Um, and maybe Emil can chime in on this in Washington, in her years in Washington, is I don't think she really wants to be seen as in conflict, say, with the squad. I think she does want to try to present herself as roughly, broadly speaking, not pushing that faction of the Democratic Party away. I don't think that's really true of of Joe Biden, per se. Um, And I I would think if she does become president and sooner rather than later, and let's, you know, I don't, I'm not wishing that's upon Joe Biden, but just say, because she's the vice president, he's an old guy. If she were to find herself as president and there were initiatives that the progressive left 
led in particular by AOC coming out of the House was championing. And you can imagine on a whole string of different issues. I think she'd have a hard time opposing Who co-sponsored Pramila Jayapal's Medicare for All bill? Was Bernie well, in know, the House, Senate? You know, he had, a, he had a bill that was a little bit different, but almost identical. And yeah, she co-sponsored that. And but she co-sponsored, co-sponsored the Green New Deal. Yeah, but when you look at the 118-odd co-sponsors in the House, there are only about 50 of them in which, you know, Medicare for All is their only thing that they're supporting in terms of health care reform. They'll be also supporting things that are promoting public options or strengthening the ACA. In fact, some of the authors of the bills will also sign on co-sponsorship. You know, Jayapal was just on the on the task force, and she honed in on strengthening the language around what Biden is supporting in the public option in a way to try to make it something of a channel potentially towards Medicare for all. Right. Um, right. And um, do you get a so, sense you're head of the progressive Demo- executive director of the progressive Democrats of America? Did you get a sense that the people were being spoken to today, that the American people were being spoken um, to or were they just the trying to th- was she trying to thread the needle to, to get Republicans who are on the fence to vote for Biden. Look, she's been a consummate politician, a machine politician in the state of California. One of the paradoxes, and you almost know this too, of the California Democratic Party is there's not a whole lot of engagement with the public and the politicians. There seems to almost be sort of a, a rotating group of sort of high-level politicians. There's there's a, a lot, of course, in the state politics, there, there are term limits. And so you have these people rotating positions. Yeah. You know, yeah, that, that, that's true, Alan. And one of the things that when they do these uh, uh, Asian American voter surveys, um, AAPI data, they ask Asian Americans if anyone, if any, if either party, Republican and Democrat, have reached out and and contacted them. And the majority of people say no. So how does that happen? It's like uh, it's like we don't really exist. And they just there's a little bit of that taking being taken for granted thing going on. Um, So uh, I I agree. I think that uh, as I said, in some things I've written, Kamala will do what she needs to do to win. She'll do what she needs to do to back Biden. Um, you know, she'll back Medicare for all. If she has cover, you know, if there's a way that she can gracefully exit the the, uh, the strategy, if uh, if it gets too linked to social socialized medicine. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, they, they tried. They, they didn't really do the, the left wing taint to tonight as you know, to, so that it's stuck. I mean, she might have gotten a little bit of, you know, red on her jacket or something, but she she was, you know, Pence couldn't really, really touch her up on that. So I think she she is a, a skilled uh, debater. She knows how to evade things, like when they asked her about, uh, what was the thing? There was one thing they asked her that she wouldn't ask directly. You know, I think about stacking the court. You know, things. Yeah, like yeah, she definitely evaded that one. Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, that's a kind of a good evasion. You know, you can't, I mean, and then you come back and you say, well, stacking. Well, look at what you guys are doing. And, and so, you know, you're not going to get uh, you know, direct answers at, at these things. But does the court Morgan, matter in this debate? People who are voting for Trump or voting for Biden going into the debate, they've made up their mind based on the court. Most people who care about the courts have made up their minds already. That's how you justify voting for Biden or Trump because of the courts. So talking about the courts is immaterial at this point, right? 
I don't know. I, I think it's it's still material because, uh, you know, a- Amy COVID Barrett is spreading the disease. And so you know, I think that's that's a, I'm concerned for all the Filipino workers in the White House. You remember there was a Filipino steward who gave Monica Lewinsky the cigar, Bill Clinton cigar. And, you know, you know, there's all got to be a lot of Filipinos there. And so I'm concerned about their health. No one's talking about them. But, uh, you know, I think that the court's still important, but there are other issues that, that would lead you to believe that, you know, my mind is my mind is made up. I mean, my ballot came today, finally, in California, and mm-hmm. I think uh, for my birthday, I'm going to go and vote in person. I'm going to make sure that the uh, USPS doesn't screw up my ballot. I'm going to, you know, go into the, 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 re- the registrar, and I'm going to, you know, fill out my ballot, and I'm going to, you know, cross my fingers and leave, you know. Alan Minsky, what what do you think the biggest mistake Pence made tonight? What was what what was just grotesque? I'm assuming you guys have had all the fun you could possibly have with the fly. Have you have you brought the fly? Was my favorite part part of Pence's performance tonight. It was a nifty prop he brought in, and I think it speaks volumes that Bernie got a nice little bird, you know, all those years ago in Oregon. And we haven't we haven't exhausted the fly, Alan. Oh, there we go. We know what flies attract to. Right. So, um, <laughs> um, you know, he's a frightening guy. You know, he's a radio host, David. So there's something to think about there for yourself in the future. You could become an evangelical Christian right wing Republican vice president one day. Um, he is a, a remarkably eloquent speaker who very rarely has verbal miscues or ums or ahs. It's almost robotic. He's so precise in the way that he chooses his words. Uh, and of course, he's very, it's all very thought through in advance. Um, but no, even given all that, I, I actually expected him to be a little bit more um, pointed, aggressive, and uh, defensive of the achievements of the administration, which, of course, are ridiculous because they're completely fictional or largely fictional. And, uh, um, but, you know, I think there's, he's a dangerous character. He puts a very good face on the very, very right-wing positions that he has championed his entire political career. Um, I mean, he's much more dangerous as somebody in governance and, uh, you know, overseeing the state of Indiana than he was as a candidate to people. So in that sense, he's, he's he was against needle exchange. He was he was uh, so right wing that in a very Republican state, people felt that he was getting saved uh, from a possible flip seat uh, by getting chosen um, as vice president. So um, he's, um, you know, he, he gets into office and he is just a straight on ideologue. Right. And uh, this was a former Democrat, at least when he was a very young man. Um, and I thought that Harris, that was one of the things she had to contend with. I know a lot of people in the general public came into this evening thinking Harris, because she's so good at the sort of prosecutorial, uh, um, you know, uh, back and forth that she would just, you know, clean the floor with Pence, but Pence is very, very good in this format. And so I do think she, they knew that in advance and I thought they prepped her well for it. Um, you know, I am saying all this and, and, you know, Kamala Harris is, is someone who I, you know, I do believe is, does have a more progressive record than Joe Biden, though that doesn't say much. If Kamala Harris does become president, the way that I spoke about her relationship possibly to the squad will be interesting. But another thing about her is I think she's, not very defined other than she's been interested in advancing her career politically and um, that she's uh, as such has aligned herself as uh, an intermediary between 
uh, an evolving Democratic Party, evolving more towards the progressive side than, say, the high era of Clintonite neoliberalism, but completely um, is uh, in harmony with the people who she, she drew in as major funders. She had this experience where she went out to the Hamptons, I think, in January 2017, and she came from it with a large number of the Clinton donors supporting her uh, for a run for the presidency. And, um, you know, there was a lot of choreography from the establishment in the party that suggested if it wasn't going to be Joe Biden, it was going to be Kamala Harris. Uh, the Na- National Democratic Party had its uh, um, largest midterm convention in the city of San Francisco. And the convention this year was planned to be at the um, of the Milwaukee Bucks, the owners of whom were the biggest bundlers for Kamala Harris. So just those kind of those kind of uh, factoids suggested that you know she really was looked to if Biden was not really going to be able to cut the mustard, and so you end up with a Biden Harris ticket. You do have the Democratic Party establishment very, very happy, very confident. Um, again, that doesn't negate on certain issues that we couldn't get better policies on balance than we would from say, if you look at the balance of Joe Biden's record. But Joe Biden is also going to have to be, he's not going to be responsive to the forces that I think she'll be attentive to because those pertain to her future political, um, her, her political future. You know, how she would have to get along with and not cross someone like AOC. All right now, <laughs> is it challenge. true that her progressive punch score is higher than Bernie's? Yeah, but that's in, don't forget, she's in the, she's in the Senate only with Donald Trump and, as president and McConnell. I think that both her and Cory Booker um, generated a much more progressive punch score than really is where they have stood. And you look at the, the platform even they put out. Well, who as, would you say is the most, pro- other than Bernie, who was the most progressive senator? Well, that's the thing is for all the, how, the, the, the back and forth between Sanders and Warren, uh, Warren was, was quite, quite singular in her opposition to where real American power lies, which is the relationship between the, between the Treasury and the banks and all that, right? That's Elizabeth Warren's career work, front, approaching it from the perspective of protection for the average household and consumers. The other people who stand out are Merkley. I mean, Markey has a really much more progressive voting record in the Senate than he ever did in the House, but he did progress, did become more progressive in his years in the House. You know, Jeff Merkley up in up in. Uh, Oregon. Uh, in, uh, Oregon, and uh, and then um, Elizabeth and and Bernie. Yeah, let me bring Professor Marianne Cummings in to the conversation you were on earlier. I am going to assume that you and Jim Earl remain unimpressed by any of this. I think we lost Jim Earl, right? But I know that you. Was there anything? That changed your mind tonight? No. <laughs> there, 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 to be brief, no. Uh, I did notice when I hopped over to the the Twitter feed that I looked at during the the presidential debate, and over to uh, Matt Taibbi and Katie Halpert's feed that they were the opposite this time. The 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 Republicans, and I'm I'm not looking at the just sort of. generic uh, partisans. I'm looking at people who actually are kind of smart and uh, the Republicans are very happy. They thought that Pence won. Hmm. And Katie thought that, yeah, Kamala had a good show. I mean, 
The last time, both sides thought that their side hadn't won. <laughs> this time, both sides thought that their side had won. I think the uh, the Republicans were way more enthusiastic about Pence, and Pence did the job. I, I, I think that again, I'm I'm listening to this debate, and it was getting kind of boring. I'm just like you know riveted by Pence's look. He, he looked like he just came out of deep freeze. You know, right. you know that he's not even sixty yet. Yeah, he looks old. Wow. Well, you know, vampires do that too. But anyway, <laughs> but the thing is that he did what he needed to do. He he did the he was the polar opposite of Trump because this is not about no. We obsess about details because we know stuff. We read art. We read. I have a we have memories that go back past last Tuesday, so we have a context for all the stuff. A lot of people watching this, they just want to see the visual. And Pence was as far away from Trump as you could get. He was calm. He was never flustered. Yeah, he did kind of talk over his time, but he didn't appear to be out of control doing it. You know, he was just being the white guy kind of, you know, I don't know, 50s sort of natural party. Right. Um, he did do one thing which uh, the, my buddies over on the uh, Republican side liked. He kind of refuted the, you know, the whole thing that Trump said both sides, good people on both sides thinking that Trump meant like the white supremacist said. At the prodding of a Republican friend, I actually did go and see the C-SPAN video, and it was true. Right after he said there are good people on both sides, meaning there are a lot of side people that weren't wanting to take down Confederate statues for whatever reason, he says. But he, he basically condemned, in the next sentence, he condemned, you know, white supremacists and things like that. I said, okay, you know, fine, fine. They're happy. I don't think anybody uh, outside of that little Republican circle even cared about that. But, um, and I think that Kamala showed herself to be, smart she's better at this than warren warren was just kind of terrible at this kind of politics she did show herself i mean again not the substance of what she's saying but her presentation is but fine. warren did better in the primaries than kamala did well warren has a natural base people who thought she was like on bernie's side but female and we need to have a woman right but uh and but kamala like you know, her appeal to the African-Americans was almost nil because they know her history. They know what she did and they are living through it. Right. But I think that Kamala, just in general, her problem, because I was listening to uh, people earlier who had way better uh, analysis than I could make, but where she missed her opportunities. But she, like John Kerry, like a lot of these Democrats, they have to straddle both sides. And when you're straddling it's an inherently weak position because you're just thinking too much. You, you just don't have the punch where you need it. Whereas exactly. Bernie Sanders could be on his feet. He had no problem. He never, he, people were even musing about how he doesn't misspeak a lot, hardly ever. Yeah, because he actually believes. Right. What he, Absolutely. Great point. He doesn't have Great to point. politicize. Even somebody like Scott Adams, who is, you know, the Dilbert guy who's the... Who, who predicted Trump would win. Somebody asked him, I think it was Bill Maher in the after hours, because Bill Maher said, hey, you predicted Trump would be not only the nominee, but odds on favor to win. And he was talking about persuasion theory and how Trump does it. 
is a textbook case of uh, persuasion theory. Then he asked him about Bernie Sanders. He says, well, you know, he said something about Hillary Clinton's. Not only do they not do it, but they don't even know it's going on. And then he was asking about Bernie Sanders. What is Bernie Sanders doing? And then Adam said, well, Bernie Sanders is odd because he's one of these rare politicians. When he says something, people just believe that he believes it, even if so he's never marketing. He's just kind of being himself. Being honest. He's not threading that proverbial needle. He's not threading the needle. He's not straddling positions. I mean, the worst Bernie Sanders does is what he's doing now, sadly. He's on this tour where tens of people show up to hear him. <laughs> yeah. It's horrible. Look. You know, the, when the Roman army came back triumphant from victory, what they would do, they would take the leader of the defeated tribe and they'd march him in this parade as a complete degradation ritual. And something about, I mean, I posted on my Facebook uh, the crowd that crowded the whole Diag area and the whole central campus when Bernie Sanders was in Ann Arbor earlier this year. Thousands and thousands of people. Apparently there were... 25 in the people in the socially spaced area in front of Bernie today with 50 people in the alleys, you know, kind of I'm going, okay, so not even a hundred people like thousands will show up to hear Bernie Sanders talk about them, about our needs. When he's talking about Biden, it's like, I said, Bernie, if you wanted to do this, you could be zooming in and have people remotely in several places come and have hundreds of people on a zoom to be going on planes and limos through airports in states where the COVID virus is now surging, like it's surging again in Michigan. It's surging in the States, It's been surging in, in Wisconsin. I hope he's getting something for this. I have he's really doing do. more than Obama seems to be doing, doing more, more than, than Hillary. He's doing more than Biden. Yeah. Biden, by the way, you know, and, and they're for a good reason, because Biden apparently was in Miami at some Mexican center where uh, little girls were doing a dance and apparently said something about, ha, well, you know, I'll be back here in four years and you'll all be older and it'll be great. And I, oh, dear. <laughs> the Adderall's wearing off from the debate. You know, he's back yes. to, you know, oh, well. Let's take some calls from the people who are in our Zoom room. We've invited some of our listeners who come to office hours on Friday nights to sit in the Zoom room and watch the debate. And I see Vince has raised his hand. Let's go to Vince. Vince? Hi. Hi. Uh, hi. Uh, yeah, I basically am worried about us getting to, I mean, I feel like uh, Biden's going to win, but I don't, I worry about the, you know, liberals, you know, leftists aren't, aren't going to feel this way, but the smug liberals are going to get so confident that um, Biden's going to get his four years. And then um, again, we're going to have, uh, he's not going to do anything enough to, uh, you know, the, in the, the the globe is there's right wing, you know, fascists rising everywhere, and um, 
I don't think uh, going back to normal is enough. You have to actually do something like FDR. But um, Howie Klein says that the Democrats are going to win with a landslide and then in two years lose it all. Right. That's the that's the pattern. You know, what makes me doubt things is that I, I don't know where they're getting their ideas and I don't know where the bench is. I don't know where the people are, you know, we're, we're dealing with the people, the, you know, when you're running and you're the candidate, you're kind of the, the, you know, the hood ornament and okay. So well, we're the people who are like pushing the car or making the, the, the car go. And, and I don't get a sense of that with, uh, with Biden and with Harris and, um, I was wondering, you know, and that's why I said the imaging of this debate is everything. People of color like the idea that, oh, here's a strong woman, Asian, black, you know, that's, that's a wonderful thing. But how is the rest of America feeling, taking to this image? And are there people who say, you know, you know, Trump wouldn't have been so bad if we could just tone down a little bit here and tone down a little bit here, and then we'd have the perfect America. And and you, you got to wonder if there are people like, um, you know, Tom Cotton Juniors who are wondering, well, I'm going to be the next legacy of Trump, and I'm, I'm I know how to do it now that it's been laid out. And I worry about those folks, and I worry that the as uh, your caller has suggested that uh, the Democrats will won't have the the brain trust to move forward in a way that will bring everyone together. Like well, we, if things get, go ahead, Alan. Oh, no, go ahead, David. I'll follow you. If things are as bad as we know they are, there'll be a revolution if there's a Democratic, well, hang on for one second. If we have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic House, and Evictions are on the rise. Unemployment is on the rise. Health care. People don't have jobs. They don't have health care. Then I feel that people will take to the streets and really go after Joe Biden. They're not going to go. They're not going to take to the streets. I don't think if Trump and the fascists are in charge. But to get a whiff of the promised land and then have it taken away from us, I think it's going to make the left and the, even the the centrists rise up and get really scary for Biden and Harris and Schumer and Pelosi. Well, I mean, I think there are two things there. Uh, one, David, is that there's but the Democratic Party is a split party between a progressive, probably in terms of public policy, majority progressive base. They didn't vote for the progressives, uh, in part because of the fear of Trump, in the sense that Sanders couldn't beat Trump. There's no doubt that played into the equation as it played out in the final phases of the Democratic nomination uh, primaries. Um, So there's this other alternative that is in the realm of electoral politics, other than just taking to revolution. I'm not quite sure what the mechanism is for Americans to take to the streets and overthrow their government. Well, I don't think they're going to, I think we're going to see 68. I think what we'll see Johnson was president. He was a Democrat. We saw it in 68 where people took to the streets because it was safe to take to the streets. It was a democratic president. You get a Republican fascist in there. It's not so safe to take to the streets. So Mm -hmm. I think if Biden doesn't deliver what he needs to deliver to the 99%, you're going to see something 
that we haven't seen before, perhaps. Right, right now, right now, for what it's worth, and I know that everybody, I'm not reading the chat, and everybody who wants me to be radicaler than that on chats. Look, I do think that the Democrats will put forward, if they win the trifecta, get all three, uh, the, you know, the Senate, the House, and the presidency. What will we put on the table for CARES Act or HEROES Act 2.0 when they get in charge? It's going to be much more generous for the average household. So right there, I think they're going to be more responsive to the crisis in a way that will, you know, at least temporarily endear themselves more than we ever saw from Obama in the 09 to um, until November 2010 when he had, the Democrats got crushed. So that that could prevent a Republican comeback. Having said that, the progressives, and of course I'm, in the, I'm, I'm, I'm involved in all this, we certainly have a large number of things we're going to be putting forward. And we'll see how much momentum we can get because there still will remain. There is a real substantive material difference between the moderate wing of the Democratic Party and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party because they are responsive to different constituencies. Because a big part of the moderate Democratic Party constituencies is Wall Street, is keeping the you know stock market high, uh, and a few other wings of, of American capitalism, Silicon Valley, et cetera. But really, the relationship is super tight with Wall Street. And... Um, so that's not at all the interests of the progressive wing of the party. And as we put things forward, we'll see how much that can gain traction as an alternative, even within the Democratic Party before 2022, et cetera. Um, and I had another thing to say, but I forgot what it is. Cause well, we'll, 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 we'll ask Stephen and then it'll trigger. I'm sure Stephen will trigger something. I've seen studies of rats. Well, this I remember, is, this by is, the way. I'm sorry. <laughs> I do remember. You go first with the rats, or do I go first with what I remember? Well, let me let me. Th- why I'm optimistic because I have to be about mm. Biden and Harris. They are my. Mm. The, if you ask me who were the two candidates I least liked from that field, they would be near the top. However, they do appeal to the the center left. They they're kind of making pr- little to the center left. And this is what I see happening. They have studied rats. They have put rats in a maze and the rats have to find the cheese, right? If the maze is set up in a way that it's impossible for the rat to get the cheese or even smell the cheese, the rat accepts it and becomes complacent. The closer the rat gets to the cheese and is unable to finally eat it, the more irate that rat becomes. And I think the the Democrats, the left, the center left, if Biden wins, will smell the cheese, probably because he cut it, but we will people like us will smell the cheese. And when he doesn't deliver, we will rise up. I don't see us rising up if Trump gets reelected. I think the the fascists oh. own the fascists own the streets if oh. Trump gets elected. Well, that, okay, I remember what I was going to talk about, I'll say that in a second, but one of my big talking points about um, the necessity of having Biden and Harris win from a progressive perspective, because you know I definitely believe that Trump has to go and that's why we gotta beat him. But also there's this. Look, Bernie Sanders was never beaten by a Republican. He was beaten twice by the moderate Democrats. Now, the moderate Democrats have a pretty established history since the Clinton administration, 92, of not delivering things that that run counter to the increasing difference between the wealthy and everybody else 
you know, everything that's the endemic problems in American society from homelessness, poverty, maleducation, a no response to climate change, et cetera, the moderate Democrats have not addressed. They've allowed these endemic problems to persist. The only political formation, in my opinion, that will address these things that need to be addressed, including, by the way, systemic racism in its, its, its deep structural forms, is the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And so they have to overcome the moderates in the party. And then I do want to say this. that I mentioned Dion's book uh, recently. E.J. Yeah, Code Red, I think is the name of the book. Maybe I'm getting that wrong. It's his brand new book. And he argues that for the sake of the friggin' planet, humanity's place on the planet, we need the Democratic Party, two things, to be in power in an uninterrupted way for 10 or 12 years like the the Roosevelt years, because the Republican Party will reverse any advance we make in building up, you know, non-fossil fuel burning energy production, which is necessary. We're going to have any chance of not having our habitat be destroyed here on the planet. And uh, secondarily, in order for them to stay in power for that stretch, they need to gravitate into a more progressive um, party for the very reasons you described, David, because the people aren't getting anything out of the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. Right. So Dion's book is good. Okay. Are we going to get 10 years? I have two, two questions. One is, are we going to have 10 years? And the second one is, David, can we have a vegan analogy with the rats? <laughs> uh, che- uh, uh, Daya cheese. Daya. That's not bad stuff, Daya. Or Miyoko. Miyoko. I'm trying to cut down on my oils. You should. You should. I'm, I'm trying to cut down. Hey, hey, David, you know how much I, I love you. I love your guests and your conversation with Alan and Mary. And you're talking about local, locals. Locals where it's at, and that's where you get the power, right? That's why, uh, uh, you know, I, that's why I, I'm the museum director of the Filipino American National History Society Museum in Stockton, California, where it is. Well, everywhere it's Filipino American History Month, October. Oh, so, cool! Yeah, best just, friends, the Filipino American. Some of my, yeah, some of my best friends are my wife's one. No, no, my my, my, oh, my co-author, my partner, and my work, and everything. Oh, that's Filipino American. I want to be president. Great, and look, and, and this is the best Filipino American Major League Baseball player, position player, Benny Agbayani. Yeah, yeah, great player. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I've got to run, David. But let me throw you off the show instead. Okay, <laughs> please, 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 Emil. I can't just sit here and let you talk this way. Get off my show. <laughs> I love. <laughs> Uh, you'll do the show tomorrow. We're gonna. We have another one tomorrow. This is a special. No, I gotta get. Yeah, I know. Hey. Send me an email or something. It's, it's the mafia. You don't. Uh, you just don't get out. You just can't say you're not going to be here. Thank you, Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast. He is also a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. People should read you over there and follow him. On Twitter at Emil Amuck. Thank you, Emil. Thank you. See you. Stephen or Stefan. Stefan. Stefan, you have to unmute. There you go. Oh. Okay. Uh, we should wrap it up. I've kept everybody, and we have another show tomorrow. And I want people to come back. And I find that if you keep the guests on for 15 hours straight. They suddenly are busy the next day. So, uh, Stephen, if you want to unmute yourself, I will call on you. If not, uh, Vince, you had, you wanted to say something again, Vince, and then we'll wrap it up.
Oh, I was just trying to reiterate that uh, I think, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but as far as my reading of history, uh, the Weimar Republic, uh, I mean, there was a strong left movement. There was socialists and communists, and and we're not even there. So that's my whole point as far as, like, you know, Biden winning and we have our first VP woman president and let's all celebrate and, like, people need to be aware. Like, if they don't do anything, uh, that's a problem, I think. Anyway, I'll shut up. Yeah, the, Na- the Nazi Germany analog... Uh, it, it hits me on a primal level, but I don't think it it it's applicable here. I think we're looking at Latin America. I think we're looking okay. at something that happened in the seventies in I agree. Chile I agree. or or Brazil or Argentina. Well, um, the, that book by those two guys from Harvard, How Democracies Die. Love it. Was, yeah. yeah, those guys. I'm not the biggest fan of it, but I do think they, in the general opening volleys, they get the outline right of the 21st century countries where uh, people have won elections. It comes by winning elections, and they still continue to have elections, so they become increasingly for show. Um, and it's while they're in power that then they, st- this is what Trump has set out to do, they start to uh, you know, tear, tear down the structures of the constitutional republic. Yeah. And that's what's happening yeah. with Modi, Tuarte, Bolsonaro would like to do it. It's happened in Eastern Europe. And that's been the model for the 21st century. And Trump fits that perfectly. Last question, then we'll wrap it up. Uh, is COVID going to be a factor in this last lap of the election? Is Donald Trump going to be at the debate next week? Will Biden agree to debate him? Will Trump have the strength? Will there be anybody in the White House working for Trump who can orchestrate the last gasp of his campaign? How badly is the virus, having the virus, going to affect the outcome of this campaign? You know, um, I, I think I think uh, part of the disservice of tonight's debate was the stuff around the um, vaccine that Pence was saying. I mean, uh, that was a very rosy picture of the prospect of the vaccine coming forward. Um, I don't see any governments around the world uh, preparing uh, or any really responsible, scientifically based um, news report saying that this thing is going to be. Uh, taken care of by... Uh, well, they were going to have a vaccine. They were, they were going to announce a vaccine near the end of October, but the CDC circumvented the White House. And yeah, well, had, them announcing one, but, but you know, the way that she didn't push back on that, but maybe she just, uh, you right. know, just let it stand for the fact-checking. But still, it's... Uh, um, the problem we have is, is uh, with the with the pandemic too, and this is this is you know this is now we've now all sort of acclimated to the reality of it, and it's going to go on for a while. Um, but you know, it, it coming round in winter months through a full winter in the northern hemisphere, and what that could do, and the damage it could uh, that could uh, could follow across many societies is uh, is unpredictable. Well, I'm going to thank everybody who uh, was here tonight. I want to thank Professor Mary Ann Cummings and 
the people of Aurora, Illinois, for electing her. And I want to thank Alan Minsky. He's the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. I want to thank Jim Earl. He kind of bowed out early on us, but he helped write the, or he did write, the Melania Trump sketch, which I thought was the best one yet. That was the best one. Maximilian Alvarez, host of Working People and editor-in-chief of Real News. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn from Americans United for Separation Church and State. Professor Adnan Hussein, chairman of the Religion Department over at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada. Mark Breslin, founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America. And Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast and a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. We do another show tomorrow. We're going to start at six o'clock on Thursday to record Friday's podcast. We'll be doing it on YouTube. If you want to join us on YouTube, if you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience via Zoom, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the attend a live taping pull down menu and I'll send you an invitation. Friday night is office hours where the listeners talk and I listen. And then Saturday night, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. We're going to do an evening with Dr. Jennifer Vertolin here on YouTube and in the Zoom room. And you're all invited. It's free. We're going to do an evening with animal behaviorist Dr. Jennifer Vertolin this Saturday night in, uh, in our Zoom room. And you're all invited We've had such successful pay-per-view events that we thought it would be nice to do a Saturday night where we didn't charge. And it's a way of saying thank you for your generosity. There is no vaccine. There's no deux machina. You have to wear a mask. You have to wash your hands. You fight this virus the same way you fight fascism. One step at a time, constant vigilance. You have to vote. And I know Biden isn't your first or 10th choice, but these are uncharted territories we're walking through. These are henchmen, the people Trump, and I don't even call them people, the the people, the, the monsters that Donald Trump has surrounded himself with are the worst of the worst. These are the worst people who have ever occupied the White House and the Capitol. And whether or not you think Kamala is a fraud, the fact is that these Republicans are planning to steal this election because the people propping Donald Trump up do not believe in democracy They don't believe in this country. They couldn't care less about this planet. And as we've learned in the New York Times this week, these Republicans, Jeff Sessions, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, they delight in seeing children at the border separated from their parents. Read this piece in the New York Times earlier this week. These are monsters. These are These are monsters who delight in seeing babies who are being breastfed, taken from their mothers. 
Trump's appointees to the Justice Department and Homeland Security are going to get worse and worse. They feel no remorse about the permanent damage that they have inflicted on mothers and children escaping criminal gangs in Guatemala. The only regret this administration has is that they were found out. The only regret that that Mike Pence has about COVID-19 is people are keeping track of how many are dying from his incompetence. This week's new revelations about Trump's sadism are identical to the revelations that we read about two weeks ago that ICE is sterilizing undocumented American women. It's not being discussed, wasn't brought up once during the debates that ICE is sterilizing undocumented American women. It wasn't brought up that the New York Times just reported that Homeland Security and the Justice Department delight, delight in being cruel to these refugees. They delighted in separating the mothers from their children. So this election is different. I know you hear that all the time, but this election is different. And don't depend on COVID to save this country. I know a lot of you are thinking, well, the Trump administration is being disabled by COVID. Nothing is going to stop these thugs. Nothing. And the only thing you can do is vote for Biden. I know you don't want to hear that, but there's no such thing as karma. There's no such thing as biology protecting us from these fascists. You can't hope that COVID-19 is just going to weaken the right wing. And uh, you have to you have to vote and then constant vigilance and holding the Democrats accountable, holding the Democrats accountable. So that's my message. It's an uncomfortable message. I was afraid that I would have to support Joe Biden. I'm a Bernie. I'm a Bernie bro. But we've seen this script before. And these guys are worse than anything Nixon put in front of us. These are the worst of the worst. Whether or not you like Biden or Kamala, you have to vote for these two. And then when they get into the Oval Office, we make their lives miserable. Thank you so much for being here tonight. It means a lot to me. Be strong and protect the weak. I'll see you tomorrow. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting.
It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. And you give your loyalty to a Jew before your own blood. 